Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. Episode 134, recorded on September 8th, 2021. The Cloud Pod has NetApp on tap. Good evening, Ryan, Peter, and Jonathan. Hey, Justin. Uh, how are you guys doing? Good evening. <laughs> Hanging in there. Hanging there in there. Is. I think that's all I got. Yeah. That's all I got this week. I saw the pain in your face so that our listeners can't see, but I, yeah. I can see in the video. You're, like, it was, <laughs> it's been it's been an event. event yeah, it's one of those one of those short weeks, Labor Day weekend. You know, get three day weekend, and then mm-hmm. you now try to fit five days into four. I I feel your pain. I get it. Yeah. Well, uh, we we have some news to get to, so let's get to it because uh, people people have some smoked uh, some meat to go smoke. Apparently, yes, so, that's me. <laughs> Let me go smoke some chicken. <laughs> nice. All right. Well, first up is DigitalOcean, uh, which we haven't talked about in a while, but they, as many people know, they're my main favorite non-hyperscaler cloud provider. Uh, and you know, I think last we talked about they had launched their Kubernetes service. Today, they have announced the acquisition of Nimbella, which is a three-year-old startup that sets out to make multi-cloud service for software development easier. Uh, the terms of the deal were not disclosed. Nimbella offers a Kubernetes-based serverless platform, and the startup founders previously created Apache OpenWhisk, an open-source service cloud platform that Nimbella also leans on. Uh, it's pitched as cloud-agnostic, meaning it can run on public or private clouds, and thus supports hybrid and multi-cloud setups. Of course, uh, there's a quote here from Digital uh, Ocean CEO Yancy Spruill. Serverless computing is the next evolution of the cloud that further removes the need for developers to manage complex infrastructure. People want to access the benefits of service capabilities without a significant learning curve, and they want functionality and pricing that is easy to understand and predictable. Uh, so, you know, I, I get having to add a serverless component to DigitalOcean. It's a competitive thing. Um, I'm not sure why they care about multi-cloud or cloud agnostic, unless they're going to try to make a multi-cloud serverless product that's run by DigitalOcean, which would be weird. Or maybe interesting. Who knows? At least they have the hybrid cloud play, even if they're not multi, multi-cloud mm-hmm. in the cloud as such. It is interesting that they buy um, buy a company though, rather than just implementing their own serverless stack with OpenWhisk. Right, or or what's the other one? Uh, the one from Pivotal that's out there. The uh, K Native, yeah. Cloud, yeah, K Native. Why not just use K Native and build yeah. your own service on top of that? I don't, I don't. I didn't really understand the play to buy it. Being mm-hmm. in that a little bit in that service industry, I think there's a lot more to like building from scratch that type of managed service. Uh, it might make a lot more sense to uh, pick up a company that's got a really good plan uh, and some technology to make that sort of jumpstart that and make it a really good customer experience when their first customers come on. Plus, you've got the engineers who built OpenWhisk in the first place. So, I mean, you can't deny that they're the best uh, SMEs around. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is actually the first time I think I've heard of OpenWhisk. I don't think I've come across it before that it's even out there. So it was it was all news to me that this company I never heard of with an open source product I never heard of purchased by DigitalOcean, which I have heard of. So <laughs> two out of three. It's the second serverless product that I'm learning about this week. And so you know, anecdotally, that's you know serverless gaining steam because there's also Kubeless. I found out which is same same kind of thing, which is interesting. Oh, nice. I think I'll always provide, uh, prefer, sorry, the, um, the, the sort of the deep integrations you get from the native functionality. So, you know, you mentioned hybrid cloud may not be a selling point for it, for DigitalOcean at least, but you can't deny that the way IAM is integrated with Lambda um, or cloud functions for GCP, I mean, there's just so many reasons to not use something which isn't native to the, the cloud that you're already in. 
I think it, mm-hmm. they must be they must be going for the hybrid slash digital ocean customers. Maybe oh, for sure. For, yeah. Maybe they're going for like a DR type plan or something something like that. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I do see that OpenWhisk supports uh, Go, Java, Node.js, .NET, PHP, Python, Ruby, Rust, Scala, Swift, uh, and even newer cloud native ones like Ballerina, which I don't even heard of that. So, <laughs> whoa. Uh oh. <laughs> uh, but you know, then of course the website also mentions Mesos, and I'm like, oh, well, that's dead. So, <laughs> Oof, yeah. <laughs> Apparently, Ballerina is a open Apache OpenWhisk runtime. Uh, so who knows? I don't really understand. <laughs> We're out of this thing. Well, if they're going to make up their own languages, it may as they may as well support old ones that have been deprecated yeah, exactly. as well. Why not? Oh, sorry. Actually, it goes to another <laughs> page where Ballerina is an open source programming language for the cloud that makes it easier to use, combine, and create network services. So I have no idea what this is. <laughs> now you've really lost me. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Next. Moving yeah. on to uh, AWS. Uh, so last week was AWS Storage Day on September 2nd. And uh, unlike the summit and the security conference, it was not a snooze fest with action packed information announcements. Uh, and you can find all the replays and the slides available to you out on their website as well as uh, some interviews with Cube hosts uh, with some of the GMs of various uh, announcements. So first up uh, is one that I thought would never happen. And so, yes, truly hell has frozen over. And now you can get NetApp filers on top of AWS natively. Uh, The new service, Amazon FSx for NetApp on tap, allows customers to launch and run complete, fully managed NetApp on tap file systems in the cloud for the first time. Uh, Well, and to be clear, that's first time on AWS because you could run NetApp on other yeah. cloud providers, but I'm not going to be metal of the marketing people. NetApp has a traditionally powered on-premise NAS and it provided a widely adopted set of data access and management capabilities. Uh, FSx for ONTAP is a fully managed. You can start to enjoy all the features in minutes. AWS provisions the file servers and storage volumes, manages your replication, installs software updates and patches, replaces misbehaving infrastructure components, and manages the failover and much more. Uh, there are two storage tiers available to you. The first is the primary storage tier, which is a built on a high-performance SSD and designed to hold the part of your data set that is active and or sensitive to latency, and you have up to 192 terabytes of that. And then capacity pool storage grows and shrinks as needed and can scale to petabytes. Uh, and it is cost-optimized and designed to hold data that is accessed infrequently. Within each uh, Amazon FSx for NetApp on that file system, you can create one or more storage virtual machines, each of which supports one or more volumes. And volumes can be accessed by NFS, SMB, or iSCSI, which is pretty cool. My favorite. You can then access it via EC2 instances, ECS, EKS clusters, workspaces, VMware Cloud, uh, on AWS, or on-premise apps and services. Uh, this is available in most AWS regions on launch. Uh, and pricing is based on multiple usage dimensions, including the primary storage, capacity pool storage, throughput capacity, additional SSD IOPS, and backup storage consumption. And I do recommend you check out the pricing examples because they are a bit complicated. But if you're already buying NetApp storage, you already know they're complicated. So uh, super easy for you on that. <laughs> uh, they are deployed in multiple AZs, uh, two AZs, in fact. Uh, and they offer you 99.99% availability SLA for each file system. I only have one question, really. <laughs> Go on. But why? (laughs) (laughs) So I see this as as a continuation of the the hybrid cloud, right? So I know that, you know, people are, you know, if you're in the data center, you want to do DR and replication of your your storage infrastructure. This is an easy way that you could replicate that into the cloud. Think about data lake applications where you have workloads that are in a private data center and you want to sort of import data into the into a data lake, this would be one way to enable that as well. And so it's it's 
and you know, and for for NetApp, it makes perfect sense. You know, they they're getting a whole lot of recognition for their you know proprietary management of storage. So it's great press for them. You know, like it makes perfect sense to me. But uh, and I'm sure I mean, NetApp didn't you know, spare no expense <laughs> in partnering with AWS on this particular product. Um, you know, at the end of the day, it, it, this looks a lot like the NetApp uh, Cloud on Tap version that you can buy from NetApp directly at cloud.netapp.com. Uh, you know, and then you provision your own EC2 instances, you provision your own EBS, and then you use their console to manage it. This is just them basically offering you that same service, but Amazon is managing the EC2 boxes for you, which is very common to some of the other managed services they've done. Uh, and then basically they're just putting a wrapper on top of what NetApp's already providing to you. So I think from that perspective, it's not a very far stretch. It's just a way to partner with NetApp differently, make it look native, make it you know, work with the same APIs and IAM and cloud trail and all those things. Uh, and give customers a way to move from their on-prem NetApp filers to AWS much easier. Okay, now Jonathan, say it again. <laughs> <laughs> I, I assume this is all built natively on top of Amazon services, and they they really are just managing the service for you on, on EC2. So if that's the case, then is this... Actually, I believe this is the, it is the first offering of this type that, that AWS has offered, because we've talked about Google partnering with people to to operate appliances in your own VPCs, and same mm-hmm. with Azure. So I think this is, this is probably the first of many partner integrations. Uh, I mean, Redis is... Well, not was it Redis or was it... Oh, sorry, Grafana. Uh, Grafana may be similar, where they're actually running Grafana on servers and managing it. And, you know, you can get the enterprise version from Grafana directly. Uh, so I think it's the second one of those, but, you know, the first storage vendor, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Uh, and it wasn't the Azure or GCP Play, like, it was sort of... Provision NetApp infrastructure that was like adjacent to your cloud compute in the yeah. So I believe in the Google space it is adjacent, right? It's you know NetApp owns the storage. It's attached to your VPC. I think in the Azure case though, it's very similar to this, where it's provisioned on top of Azure VMs and, and provided to you in that method. Um, but you know maybe we can get Anthony live, who's the executive vice president, uh, to come and talk to us about it at some point. Uh, but uh, I do have some quotes. Speaking of Anthony Lai. Executive Vice President and General Manager of Public Cloud Services at NetApp. And he is really the brainchild behind all the cloud uh, things going on at NetApp. And having talked to him multiple times, he does really get what it takes to move a legacy infrastructure company to the cloud. Uh, So he's definitely interesting to listen to and hear his perspective. Uh, But he says, NetApp is a cloud-led software company that specializes in helping our customers get the most out of their data. ONTAP and its data management capabilities are integral for some of many mission-critical workloads. With Amazon FSx for NetApp, ONTAP, we brought Net, we've brought NetApp's trusted file storage and data management capabilities to the AWS cloud. By providing a fully managed service that's supported, run, and sold by AWS, we're making it simple for our customers to leverage the power of ONTAP for virtually any appliance. This is just the definition of co-opetition. Exactly. <laughs> the end of the day. It's pretty convenient, actually, uh, with, with storage shortages. And silicon shortages, it must be pretty difficult to manufacture your own hardware at this point. I mean, we see we see problems all over the industry. So it, it may be a very important play for NetApp to partner with clouds in this way. If they can't buy their own hardware and make their own hardware to sell for the data center market anymore because of uh, you know supply chain constraints, then maybe maybe this is their the next best option. But don't the hyperscalers also have to acquire the same things? Ah, but they have more, they have bigger wallets. <laughs> <laughs> they have, they have, they have their wallets. own silicone in many cases as well, which helps get them a lot further along the path. Yeah. 
Uh, there is a quote here as well from Wayne Dusso, the Vice President of File, Edge, and Data Services at AWS. Uh, and I'll share that one before we move on. In collaborating with NetApp to deliver Amazon FSx for NetApp ONTAP, we're giving customers the only complete cloud service that is built on ONTAP and provides its most popular features and capabilities. Amazon FSx for NetApp ONTAP now makes it even easier for customers to migrate applications and run them on AWS using the same familiar file storage workflows and data management capabilities they've used today on-premise. Uh, so, you know, the one thing about this kind of that quote kind of reminds me of is, well, okay, so maybe Amazon FSX is just a brand that they can plug anything into. They've already plugged uh, FSX for Windows into it. They already have the other one for the really high compute. Now they have NetApp. You know, do we start seeing, you know, Amazon FSX for EMC, or do we see Amazon FSX for other cloud, you know, other storage providers and solutions? Is this really a gateway to them being able to partner with a lot of those type of vendors? Um, you know, that might be quite interesting in the long term as well. So we'll just see where FSX uh, goes from here. But uh, I think this is a great opportunity for companies who are doing the NetApp thing uh, and definitely looking to make that switch without having to replatform. Yeah, it's definitely something I'm going to look into because if, if we can migrate all of our old NetApp snapshots, which are currently the sticking point for migrating all that data to, to the cloud, then this is a huge opportunity. Yeah. Hey, everyone. Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud pod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008, they are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. Foghorn, the promise of cloud delivered. All right, so moving on to the next part of storage day, uh, EFS uh, currently has always offered you two standard storage classes, EFS standard and EFS standard and frequent access, and then uh, two one-zone versions of that as well, EFS one-zone and EFS one-zone and frequent access, just to make it confusing. Uh, and customers love the cost savings of infrequent access, but they also want to ensure that they won't get unexpected data access charges if access patterns change and the files that they haven't transitioned to IA are accessed infrequently. And so that's key because the key thing about files that are in infrequent access, every time they get access, you pay for it. Where if it's not in infrequent access, you, you just pay for it as part of your cost per gig. Uh, now, AWS is launching Amazon EFS Intelligent Tiering, which is a new EFS lifecycle management feature that automatically optimizes costs for shared file storage when data access patterns change without operational overhead. So they've sort of already had this for a while, to be fair. Um, you know, so you could move data from standard to infrequent access, but there was no way to get really back from infrequent access without going through some manual hoops and through some extra steps. And so this is really giving you the ability to go bi-directionally. So if, you're, if this file hasn't been accessed for six months, but then all of a sudden today, you know, it starts getting access, instead of paying for every access you pay that one time, it moves it back to the standard uh, you know, non-infrequent access tier. And then basically it starts the clock over again, which typically you can set anywhere from a day to you know ninety day window that you want to move between intelligent tiering. Uh, so one of my one of my friends that I helped do some consulting for from time to time on his website, we use EFS and frequent access, and so we want to turn this on and we move some data and we saved him some money, which was super nice. So I actually got to use this one. Freaking customers. We want infrequent access to save money, <laughs> but also <laughs> we want to access those things more frequently when we need to. Like. <laughs> 
Well, I mean, again, it's, you know, your your website has these things that you use often. And then, you know, hey, like the Christmas files and the Halloween files, you know, you don't use those as often. And so, you know, when you when you need them in the fall, I like them to be highly available and not cost me as much money. But when I don't need them or occasionally need them, I, they can be infrequent. So. Yes. Yeah, it's perfect. I mean, it's logical, reasonable. It makes sense. If it if I haven't accessed it for a year and suddenly I access it again, it might be accessing it more than just once. Yep. And if not, tear back later, move back to yeah. infrequent. Yep. Yeah. So it definitely gives you the flexibility and, and options uh, that you didn't have before with EFS, uh, which you know, EFS is still pretty expensive, even though they've done some cost savings and things. So anything you can do to kind of keep those prices down, I think it's a plus. Uh, so this, so you know, NetApp was pretty exciting. I was I was super jazzed about that out of the storage day, uh, and you know, cursing them that they couldn't have put that on, uh, you know, Summit. <laughs> uh, but you know, they all then announced this one, which I think is actually even cooler, and that is you can now uh, accelerate access to S3 with a multi-region application endpoint. Uh, the access endpoint now basically allows you to write data to multiple S3 buckets based on things like latency, um, etc. Building multi-region applications, of course, allows you to improve latency for end users and to achieve higher availability and resiliency in the case of unexpected disasters, uh, but at the cost of pushing all of that in business logic into the application traditionally, making them responsible for writing the data to multiple S3 buckets. And there's been all kinds of hacks and replication technologies that we've built out over the years to solve this exact issue. Uh, And so AWS is admitting that they are now going to start helping us with that heavy lifting of multi-region apps, (laughs) which is great. And with a Amazon S3 multi-region access point, you can define global endpoints that span buckets in multiple AWS regions. And with this S3 multi-region access point, you can build multi-region applications with the same simple architecture used in a single region. Uh, S3 multi-region access points deliver built-in network resilience built on top of AWS Global Accelerator to route S3 requests over the AWS Global Network. And by by dynamically routing your request to the lowest latency copy of your data, S3 multi-region access points increase upload and download performance by up to 60%. And not only does this work for servers, but also for edge applications that need performance and reliable write-only endpoints, such as IoT devices. Uh, replication between data can be either one-directional, so if you want it to go to east and then get replicated out to all the regions uh, from the east region, and that be your write location, you can do that. Or you can do bi-directional replication uh, between all of the buckets. This does have CloudFormation support day one, so that's always a plus. Uh, but of course, there is a catch. <laughs> this is very cost complicated. So there are many, many costs associated to this that you have to be aware of. <laughs> and so they're hard to predict, and I'm a little bit miffed that they went to this level of complexity with the costing. So first of all, because it's using the Global Access Accelerator, any data crossing it goes through the multi-region access point will cost you uh, basically uh, 0.0033 cents per gigabyte processed. And that is in addition to the charges for your S3 request, the storage data transfer, and the replication. And if your app accesses the multi-region access point over the internet, you're charged an internet acceleration cost per gigabyte as well, uh, which depends on the, co- on the time transfer type, upload or download, and whether the client and the bucket are in the same or different location. So, you know, I particularly love it when you know we send Ryan to Singapore, and he downloads a 500 terabyte file from US East through the Global Accelerator because that's really hard to predict. So, yeah, there's just some gotchas here. So definitely get the calculator out, get the spreadsheet out, figure out what this actually will cost you. But, it, you know, looking at the complexity of managing multiple uh, regional access bo- uh, buckets and the application logic side might be cheaper to go this direction. And I think it's an option that's quite attractive, and I hope it gets a cost cut sometime in the future. I hope there's a new, another iteration of this, actually, because I think what customers asked for was a global bucket type. 
where regardless of the region they access the bucket in, the, the, the contents of the bucket was replicated to multiple locations. And that would work with existing applications, just change the bucket type. It's still fairly region agnostic. The complexity this brings and the, the additional cost this brings is, is, is enormous. And I, I hope they reconsider their implementation of this. I mean, most of what you could do here, you could already do with, um, with bucket replication or with CloudFront or with, with other technologies. So it's, it's kind of like, I find it a little, a little over the top. I don't, I don't think it's what people actually wanted. I mean, I don't know if it's what they wanted or not wanted, but I think at these prices, they definitely didn't want it. No. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, think, I think if the price is a little bit more attractive or a little bit simpler to process uh, and to calculate and be, make it a little bit more predictable, um, I think people would potentially be excited about this a little bit more than they are. Curious to see the different use cases, because I bet there's use cases where this price is pretty nominal compared to the, the total infrastructure cost of the application. And the simplicity uh, that it brings for the use case is totally worth it. But I, just, I, I have no way of figuring that out without just like turning it on and seeing what happens is what I feel like. Forget the spreadsheet. Just turn it on and see what happens. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I, I don't want to sound terribly negative about the whole thing, but there, there are definitely some useful features like replication control and finally an SLA around replication of objects to different regions. This is all awesome things that we really need as architects to, to use S3. From from multi region applications, so I'm I'm happy about the feature set. I'm just a little concerned about the complexity. I think it goes to show the the you know that the the simple request of like I agree the the customer wanted a global bucket, right? I want it right here, and I want it to be available everywhere, and I don't want to think about that. I think this illustrates that that request is more complicated under the hood, and so you you know they should abstract it. I agree with you there. It should just be sort of handled as part of the service, but. They're, they want to be real transparent in the pricing because this is one of the ones where I bet you it'd be more expensive once you turned it on. You do your you know thumb in the wind on your spreadsheet and try to get an idea, but then if you get a surprising bill, they want that yeah. up front. There, there are a couple of things that you, you just mentioned the SLA that I, I did not mention as I summarized this down as I failed in my job as summarizer-in-chief. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, there are some options for the replication set when you set it up the replication again you can choose between you know from one one bucket to all other buckets and you know, like a write in this bucket read in all other buckets model and then there's also the the multi uh, bucket replication so if i write data to one bucket and then to another bucket you know the, all that stuff gets replicated uh, so yes there is now an sla if you're willing to pay for it <laughs> of 99.99% that your data will be replicated within 15 minutes uh, and when you pay for it, they also give you replication metrics and notifications of this data. Uh, they will also replicate delete markers, uh, and you can choose to turn that on or off. So if you don't want deletes to be replicated, but only in one region you want it to be deleted, uh, you can do that, which allows you to potentially do some interesting you know, delayed <laughs> deletes and some other things you can write and some Lambda code around that or you know, potential opportunities for future features. Uh, and then also you can do replication modification sync for metadata changes. So if you do have a bucket that you're writing in the East region and you're replicating it to all the other regions as read-only, but you still want to take some type of metadata and replicate that back from the read-only regions back to the write-only region, you can do that as well uh, and just replicate the, the metadata, which is interesting. Um, so there, there's definitely some interesting use cases that come out of that uh, that could be cool. But again, if you want that SLA and guarantee that the data replicated uh, you can get an SLA now, which is appreciated too. I didn't see pricing for the SLA, but I imagine it's not cheap. Yeah, especially if you have an RPO uh, documented in a DR requirement for your company. 
that's probably where the 15 minutes comes from. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a pretty yeah. common, uh, pretty common replication target for DR. Yeah. Yep. Please about a feature request now. I got a, I got a feature request for S3 with versioning turned on. It's a points in time restore, so I should be able to say, show me, show me my bucket as it looked 30 minutes ago yeah. or an hour ago. That would be awesome. I got a yeah. point in time. Yeah, I will, I will draft that after the show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> Make my object store. Yeah. Speaking of S3. <laughs> How did they not make storage day September 3rd? <laughs> Missed opportunities. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I was September 3rd was a Monday, right? Maybe they still want to do a, a conference on a Monday. That's probably what it is. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, our last storage day announcement. Uh, in 2018, Amazon S3 launched intelligent tiering, uh, which was great until you racked up a massive bill as to move data from one tier to another, which I've done. Uh, but as part of the storage day tier, they're giving you new opportunities for additional savings. And that's because there's two gotchas to intelligent tiering. First, there is a minimum storage duration currently, or was currently, uh, that basically required you to have the data for more than 30 days in any given tier, uh, which could be problematic if you had data that you, you know, maybe it's a log file, you need it only for 30 days, but you don't want to keep it in S3 expensive tier. You know, after a couple of days, you want to move it to a lower tier. But that wouldn't really work with the minimum storage duration and you end up paying extra fees for those. And then the other one, which is the real killer, was monitoring automation charges were collected for any object smaller than 128 kilobytes because they didn't design this feature for customers who wanted to do lots of small files. They designed it for big files. Uh, but again, you know, this is where you know, customers then got penalized for using it for things that it wasn't designed for. Uh, and so because those are both two pain points that have hurt many companies, <laughs> they have now eliminated both of those charges. So there's no longer a minimum storage duration period, and you're no longer charged a monitoring automation charge for data smaller than 128 kilobytes, um, which is quite nice and will give you some definite savings uh, as you work through intelligent tiering. So there you go. You guys are stunned. I can see the stun. Yeah. Trying to make a small object joke, but it's just... <laughs> but yeah... Uh, it's yeah it's i mean this is one of those challenges that you frequently run into when it's too late you know you have a whole bunch of data and you know it's little tiny data uh, stored in mass becomes very challenging very quick and so you know a little bit of solace knowing that amazon has the same sort of troubles that you know i do in my day job with their you know managing those files but yeah this is this is a nice thing um especially since a lot of you know amazon driven log sources sort of kind of chunk up rights and thinking specifically like CloudWatch subscriptions and that kind of thing, like into arbitrarily small chunks of data as they write them in the history. So yeah, it's good. Indeed. Well, that wraps up storage day. And then they gave us one last gift, which I thought we should talk about in the main show. <laughs> uh, first, the low code came for our Excel sheets and access databases. And then it came for the bespoke developers <laughs> and no one complained. And now it comes for the AWS Transfer Family. AWS Transfer Family now makes it easy for you to create, execute, and monitor post-uploading processing for file transfers over SFTP, FTPS, and FTP over for Amazon S3 and DFS. And using this feature, you can now save time with low-code automation to coordinate all the necessary tasks, such as copying and tagging. You also configure the custom logic to scan for errors in the data, including PII, viruses, malware, or incorrect file formats or types. And with managed workflows, quickly detect anomalies and meet your compliance requirements with ease. There you go. FTP has gotten low code, no code before most other people did. <laughs> Just shows the challenges of FTP. Well, it, it also shows the sort of use case or the user base of, you know, people administering 
you know, stuff like that. So it's like, I don't know how to code a complex workflow to make this thing happen. I just want these things to happen when you upload mm-hmm. a file. So now they can drag and drop and make like kind of a WYSIWYG pipeline. Is it, yeah. is it really that much easier though with hieroglyphics instead of the alphabet? <laughs> Not to me, <laughs> but it probably feels more, you know, easier for those who aren't embedded yeah. in one. Hey, the number of clients I talk to who are like, hey, I need to transfer you a file. Can we just use FTP? And you're like, really? We, we, we use S3 these days. Let's use the S3 API. Like, why are we, why are we screwing around with this? <laughs> yeah. it's crazy. I'm, I'm just curious. It's, it's great having the local, low-code um, way to go and figure that integration. But who, who writes the integration that does the thing with the file once it's been uploaded? I mean, that's, that's not low-code anymore. Running a virus scan isn't low-code. Well, I think Amazon's giving you some pre-packaged um, low-code code that they wrote for you with their Postbook developers, <laughs> so you could then plug it into your workflow. <laughs> as long as it does what you want. Yeah. For listeners of the Cloud Pod, you know that I have no love for Microsoft Active Directory, which is why I'm excited to tell you about the leading cloud directory platform, JumpCloud. JumpCloud makes it easy to solve today's IT challenges by unifying device and user management through a single pane of glass, enabling you to securely manage your users and devices and perform common tasks like onboarding and offboarding remote workers. With JumpCloud, you no longer need to implement an on-premise Active Directory infrastructure or additional tooling to scope a user's access, and you can ensure that the user is coming from trusted devices and networks. Enabling JumpCloud's zero-trust solutions improves the security and compliance of your network, ensuring users have access only to the services they need when they need them. To start your organization's move to a modern, secure hybrid work model, try JumpCloud for free today at cloud.jumpcloud.com slash thecloudpod. That's cloud.jumpcloud.com slash thecloudpod. All right, well, let's move on to GCP, uh, which had no new news this week, which means we're moving on to Azure. That was easy. <laughs> Super easy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah there were a bunch of like, you know, partners who wrote articles this week and nothing, nothing super exciting on the GCP side. I think they took Labor Day off is what, what, what happened there. Mm. So, let's see. Well, uh, in 2019, Microsoft and Pivotal, which is now VMware, uh, announced the Azure Spring Cloud, a fully managed service for Spring Boot applications and also potentially Arabian Spring uprisings, you know, potentially as well. But uh, they set out to solve many of the common challenges enterprise developers face when running Spring Boot applications at scale. Uh, and the service, of course, manages dynamic scaling, security patching, out-of-the-box rotation, etc. But that wasn't enough for many of these customers, apparently. In fact, they wanted Kubernetes. Not just any Kubernetes, they wanted Tanzu Kubernetes. And so now customers have the ability to launch Tanzu components as part of their Azure Spring Cloud, including the Tanzu build service, the Tanzu application configuration service, and Tanzu service registry, all available to you in preview. So you can now run Tanzu with your Azure Spring Cloud Enterprise service delivered to you by Azure and VMware. And I now know why, uh, you know, Spring didn't really make it big in Java. (laughs) If it requires this kind of complexity, et cetera. It doesn't even. I mean, I want to say, but why here? I mean, it's still a little bit confused. It's like <laughs> this is this is a much better what why? Yeah, it, you know, you you see this as uh, um, more of a PaaS offering. Hopefully, if it's catering to a specific, you know, application like Spring Boot, but now we still got to run it on VMware on Azure on, on Azure on VMware on Tanzu. Well. 
So VMware is all obfuscated from you. So you don't see the VMware. You don't see the Tanzu. But it's there. It's, it's there. there behind the service, and Microsoft and VMware are managing it for you, which is, I guess, the thing. But then they're giving you this Tanzu build service. So, I mean, it really, I guess it's a hybrid play because those are the tools you probably have on-premise if you're running Tanzu on-prem. And now I have them available to me in the cloud as well. But yeah, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. <laughs> I just want one layer of abstraction, and then don't tell me about any of the other. Like, ones. why? Why go through all this? Just do Kubernetes. Just do yeah, Kubernetes exactly. Yeah. I had this reversed in my head. I was thinking that it was going to plug into my existing VMware console and be resources that are running on Azure, but I could manage them all with a single pane of glass. But it sounds like this is more abstracted. Which, yeah, you're right. I this this is sort of like why. OpenShift, but on top of <laughs> on top of Azure in some ways, although it's not really it's not really OpenShift mm-hmm. because it's more limited to just Spring Boot apps. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. it's, it's a bit of a weird announcement. I, you know, for people who want this, I'm sure it's great. I just don't. I I'm not ever been in this world where Spring was that big of a thing because the last company I think was doing Spring Java was eight years ago, so it's been a while. I mean, it's it's definitely out there. It's it's an enablement, but does it need its own managed platform? Like I've I've never really realized. I'd never seen it to be that difficult to manage. Yeah, neither. Well, I mean, because it's so complicated to manage. Of course, you need an APM tool to view the details of your Spring Boot application, uh, and you know, source you want to probably have the top right choice in the magic quadrant, which is Dynatrace. Which, by the way, I did not know they were Dian- it was Dynatrace. That was a, that was a shocker to me. I was going to make a joke about. You know, this being a Diatrace, like the third runner. But no, no, they're, they're the leader contender in APM now, <laughs> according to the Magic Water. Uh, but now you can monitor your Spring Boot uh, with a very simple line of code in your Spring Boot application. It'll pull all the Diatrace components into it and instrument that for you. So now get that built into your Azure Spring Cloud Enterprise product as well. So there you go. Diatrace now available to you in Spring Boot. I mean, this is the advantage of using something like Spring Boot, you know, is that you can have this very easily plug- pluggable um, tracing into your, you know, into your framework and all you very little code to do that. So that's that part I really like. And that's one of the advantages. Um, yeah, it's kind of neat. Yep. Azure Files got some updates this week as well. Uh, two announcements for Azure Files. First is SMB multi-channel, which... Uh, we talked about when it was in preview, is now generally available. And this, of course, is the thing that you used to do back in the 90s when you needed to move files really quickly off the internet. You download one of these like third-party utilities <laughs> that would then basically copy files in multi-streams uh, so you could download them faster. Uh, that's now come to SMB clients, finally. <laughs> so you no longer have to wonder why the file copy from the server down the hallway from you is taking 45 minutes to copy 5 gigs. Uh, you can now get multi-channel streaming of that data if you're using uh, SMB multi-channel for Azure Files. Uh, so that's the first thing. And the next one is Azure Files now supports storage capacity reservations for premium, hot, and cool tiers. So you can reserve that premium, hot, steamy, cool storage. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not following that. That's, yeah, that's good. As long as premium is <laughs> in there somewhere. Exactly. <laughs> All right. And then our last Azure announcement for the week, uh, automatic scaling with... Azure Virtual Machine Scale Sets with Flexible Orchestration Mode. It's now in public preview. This enables Elastic Virtual Machine Profile and Automatic Scaling for Azure Virtual Machine Scale Sets uh, with Flexible Orchestration Elastic Profiles and Automatic Scaling. Hopefully, this doesn't include Jupyter support. Maybe a little too soon for that joke. Uh, <laughs> features, <laughs> the features are now in public preview and provide up to 1,000 instances in a scale set. 
ability to manually add VM instances to the scale set. The option to spread instances across fault domains automatically or specify a fault domain. Uh, you can place on-demand and spot VMs in the same skill set and define a VM profile and specific, specify instance counts as well as oddly scale out and scale in based on metrics, schedules, or AI predictions uh, and many more features if this is for you. This is really fleets for Azure, but you know, glad to see mm. it come to Azure as well. It's definitely a welcome addition, you know, being able to have that flexibility and configure ephemeral workloads. It's good. Yeah. I hate I hate all the naming of this though. Still. A lot of names. Scale sets, scale in, scale out. Just ugh. needed to yeah have a decoder ring as I read though the press release just to figure out what this was because uh, didn't get it. Yeah. From the it was, I'd say you got to be first to market to have the right names on things, but then AWS aren't really great at that either. So <laughs> yeah, I mean <laughs> no. Google's one is getting all the good names nowadays because they just they go with the most obvious thing. Yeah, Google proxy server. Got it. I know exactly what yeah. that is. Google Firewall. Check. Got it. I know what that is too. No. Where? So then you're not a big fan of like SageMaker? No. I, I think SageMaker is a beautiful name. I'm hoping for, mm-hmm. for the naming convention like in the, the 90s and early 2000s that, you know, to come back in vogue where we start naming everything after our favorite superheroes or, <laughs> or Simpsons character or, you know, because it's like fashion. It will come around again. Right? Yeah. Right. It will. <laughs> Fair enough. You can start naming all your services after Simpsons characters again. All kinds of, all kinds of <laughs> Lord of the Rings, sci-fi characters, mm-hmm. Borg comes to mind. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep, yep, for sure. Mine was always motorcycles because I'm kind of a one-trick pony there. But yeah. I mean, how many brands of motorcycles? Oh, you, you did brand and model? You can do all kinds of things. It's I mean, it's mostly just, and it has to be like theme adjacent at, you know, where so. I mean, naming of servers can become important again when IPv6 becomes popular because no one's going to remember the IPs anymore. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, that is it for new news this week. Uh, Let's go to the other new news, the lightning round, Peter. Yes, uh, AWS Systems Manager Change Calendar now supports third-party calendar imports, giving you a more holistic view of events. I mean, what, no one wanted to use Workmail for this? Come on. What? Oh, so I was hoping that I could use one of those like managed calendar so like i now i will never schedule a change during one of the sharks games so. Ooh, i like it <laughs> that'd be cool yeah. that'd be awesome i imported the mind calendar and it told me that everything broke a few years ago amazon <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> code guru reviewer adds new inconsistency detectors <laughs> like i need another reason not to run this on my code <laughs> well orion i'm happy to tell you that i now know that i'm inconsistently consistent Mm. <laughs> I read it yesterday, but it gave me a different answer. Oh, Can I just uh, just? <laughs> <laughs> we should note this down. I think uh, somehow I feel like this contest is over. <laughs> uh, how about cross-account event discovery for Amazon Event Bridge schema registry? Any? Anything? I'm still you trying know? to discover what EventBridge schemas are, but you know it's all good. <laughs> Take a cross account. And once I discover them, I'll register. I've got nothing. AWS Database Migration Service now supports migrating multiple databases in one task using MongoDB as a source. Couldn't figure out why they needed this. Then I was like, oh yeah, MongoDB, you had to shard everything. So yeah, mm. you're going to need this. What could possibly go wrong doing it all at once? I mean, yeah. it wasn't consistent before. It's really, really inconsistent now. <laughs> <laughs> Amazon Monitron launches a new Ethernet gateway device. 
I am from the planet Monotron. I need an Ethernet gateway. It's <laughs> <laughs> pretty good too. Did I miss the announcement of the Monotron service? Uh, it's something so not in our wheelhouse. It's like Monotron is for uh, you know monitoring industrial equipment. So you probably remembered it and okay. it went out of your ear because you were like, I don't, I'll never use that. Yeah. Speaking of first to market on names, I guess. I thought it was the name of that yeah. robot from uh, Lost in Space. <laughs> <laughs> Danger, Will Robinson. Oh, he's the best. It was on CloudWatch Application Insights, add support for Microsoft SQL Server, FCI, and FSX Storage. So you now figure out what to do with all that FSX storage on NetApp, apparently. Yeah. I bet you could find a way to spend some extra money doing that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And finally, AWS Firewall Manager now supports AWS WAF log filtering. All right, which of you guys let your security person get to Amazon who said, well, we already filtered it with the WAF. We need to filter it with the firewall too. No, no, no. So you've misunderstood this. This is so that I can finally let the security in. So I'm going to filter out all the, the the attacks and the stuff that's being blocked away so they don't freak out and think that everything's ah, on fire. Okay. Oh, so you're you're thinking WAF in front of the firewall. <laughs> you give them access to the firewall. You blocked it at the WAF. I see. Okay. Yeah, we don't log. We don't log that. Got part, it. So check. Yeah. Your botnet has no no That's power fine. here. What are all these denied events? Well, they were denied. Who cares anymore? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know. Exactly. Really? The best CISO I ever had was like, I don't care about deny logs. I want the allow logs because I want to know what's yeah. actually getting through. Yeah. I was like, That's brilliant. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> that concludes our round. Jonathan is the winner. Yes. Nice. <laughs> Yeah, well earned. Yep. That was good. Yeah. All right, I marked it. He actually does homework, so he's actually prepared for the jokes this week. Yeah, yeah, it showed. <laughs> see, see, preparation works, Jonathan. That's all. It, that's all it takes. I like to say I did preparation, but I was just like enough earlier in the show, and then <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I, got, I got bored when you were talking about FSX, so I just scrolled down to the lightning round and started reading. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Yeah, NetApp, whatever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's saying why. He's because like, I'm like, he's off on the lightning round. Got it. All right. Well, there are things coming up once again here in the cloud world. Azure Data Governance event, September 28th. Check that out. SNCC Conf, uh, October 5th or 7th. We did interview Josh Stella earlier. He said SNCC. I don't know if you caught that, Jonathan. So the the ever the mm. never-ending quest to figure out how to say SNCC, sneak, snake properly is still going. So I'm hoping the conference will answer that question for us on October 5th or 7th. Uh, KubeCon, October 11th through 15th, and Google Cloud Next, October 12th through the 14th, as well as the HashiConf, October 19th through the 22nd. Uh, and the Google Government and Education Summit, I believe it's Google, right? Yes, Google, November 3rd through 4th. And AWS reInvent, November 29th through December 3rd, which did have an update today. Yes. Uh, they will require you to be vaccinated if you're going to the conference uh, unvaccinated people will not be allowed to attend in person. Uh, so that's just one more step towards this thing's getting canceled, just to be honest. <laughs> but if it does happen, I feel much, much better about it being vaccinated personally. Uh, that you know, I was sort of on the side of, I'm not going to go if it happens, mm-hmm. and now I'm, I'm back to 50-50. I read that the other way, that that was a commitment to doing it. You know, it's like, this is, what do we do to make it safe? Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is, you know... This is the biggest move that you can do, which is you know, limit entry. Yeah, well, you know, it, but based on this, uh, the Seattle Kraken, which is their NHL team, uh, you know, which I think Andy Jassy is a part, uh, a minority owner of it. They also announced that they were going to require only vaccinated people to go to uh, Seattle Kraken games in person. 
which was one of the very first Seattle teams to make that declaration as well. So, you know, I suspect that it's just maybe an overall Andy Jassy thing. Just like, no, no, vaccination required. (laughs) Pure speculation. Vaccinated and masked. Correct. And masked as well, yes. Required to wear a mask at all times and be vaccinated. So they are holding, uh, you know, again, I think you're right. I think it's, how do we make, how do we mitigate the risk if it does happen in person? But I also think it's, you know, if there's a big fall spike, a fourth wave in the fall, I, I don't think it's happening. So we'll see. Yeah. All right. I mean, if there's, yeah. Well, if I go, I can tell you one thing. Yeah. I'm going to be watching the keynote from my hotel room. Yeah. I'll be doing that either way. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Co- I do that. With, I do That's that without COVID. Done that for the last several <laughs> yeah, years. I do that without COVID, <laughs> let alone with COVID. So. Yeah. Yeah. Like, so, a, yeah. I don't want to wake up that early to get into the, the dumb room <laughs> to sit there on really uncomfy seats. Yeah. So. Yep. To wait in line. That's interesting. Yeah. I wonder if Werner's actually back in the country yet, or if he's still in uh, the Netherlands. I think he's still in the Netherlands. Last mm. I, last I heard. But uh, I mean, his blog post mm. two weeks ago, we talked about he was still in the Netherlands, going to shows. So. Interesting. All right. All right. Well, that's another fantastic week in the cloud. We gotta let Peter get off to smoke his meat and uh, let him get that. So appreciate you guys here. I'll see you next week in the cloud. Have a good night. See ya. Bye, everybody. And that is the week in the cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Foghorn Consulting and Jump Cloud. Check out our website, the home of the Cloud Pod, where you can join our newsletter, Slack team, and send feedback or ask questions at thecloudpod.net or tweet us with the hashtag thecloudpod. Cloud Pod.